Hey y'all, thanks for tuning in to this week's recording of Redeemer Church of Knoxville's Sunday Sermon. We're really glad to have you with us because we know that there are a million different podcasts that you could be listening to right now. So we're thankful that you've chosen to spend some of your day with us. We hope that this recording will be an encouragement to you and that God, by his spirit, will use his word to remind you of Jesus' love. If you would like to reach out to us, we would love to hear from you. To do that, please email us at office at redeemerknoxville.org. We also want to give a quick thank you shout out to Evie Andrus and Parker Green, who you hear playing our awesome intro and outro music here each week. Lastly, if you'd like to support Redeemer and her mission to Urban and University Knoxville, please visit www.redeemerknoxville.org and look for the little give button in the top right corner. Thank you so much, and here is this week's sermon. Well, I'm still uh, recovering from the jellyfish accident down on the Great Barrier Reef uh, from a couple of weeks ago. Uh, actually, a pickleball incident. But uh, so I'm still on the floor. Uh, so I hope y'all don't mind that. It really doesn't really matter what you want or care about at this point because uh, I'm staying here for a little bit more. But anyway, if you have a Bible and you would like uh, to follow along with me, you can do so by turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 25 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there's one that's in front of you in the pew rack. There's also the text that's been provided for you uh, in your bulletin if you want to follow along. I do want to welcome you to Redeemer this morning. It's so great to have you with us. Uh, my name's Sean Slate. I'm the pastor here and we're glad you're here because we know that there are a million different things uh, that you could be doing this morning. For instance, you could be over at the Thompson Bowling Center to watch our number 13 in the country, Lady Vols, in their basketball game today. You could be at home with the fryer putting those wings and getting some... Uh, what would it be? Maybe a queso con carne. Uh, I told y'all last week I'm trying to learn Spanish. So that would be cheese with meat. Uh, getting ready for the Super Bowl. Or uh, you could be contemplating the, the blockbuster Simmons Harden trade, which is going to change the world, I'm pretty sure. Uh, at least change my experience with the world since I fundamentally, well, anyway. But uh, <laughs> interact with the world through the NBA. But uh, uh, y'all aren't doing any of those things right now. You're here with us and I'm really glad you're here. And the reality is that there's really nothing better that you could do with your time uh, than worship Jesus and consider his claims upon your life and to think about the beauty of his kingdom. And so I do want to welcome you to Redeemer this morning. What is Redeemer? Well, Redeemer is a church. And what that means is that we're a community of people who are trying to learn how to love God. We're trying to learn how to love our neighbor. And fundamentally, what we believe is that Jesus is God. He's the Messiah. And he's entered into the world to die for our sins and to reveal the love of the Father. And so every week as his people, we gather together to worship him so we might learn to rest in that love that God has for us in Christ. And as we rest in his love, we then become a people who delight to gather together in community. And so we love to watch the NBA together, the Super Bowl together, fry chicken wings together. But we really love to read the Bible and pray together so that together we might reflect the love of God to our family, to our friends, to our neighbors who are here in Urban and University in Knoxville. And hopefully in some way uh, it would spill out into the entire world as we reflect him. Um, to it. And so that's who we are. We're people who are trying to learn how to love God. We're trying to learn how to love our neighbor as we rest, as we remind, and as we reflect. And so to help us do that this morning, we're returning to our series entitled True Spirituality, Reflections on Paul's First Letter to the Corinthians. And my hope for us during this season of Epiphany is that we'll once again see that true spirituality 
isn't so much those experiences that we have with God, though those are often wonderful. Uh, it's not so much these different levels of Christianity that you graduate from one level to the next to the next. And it's not even so much those disciplines or those practices that we do that make life work for us. But true spirituality is actually the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And the curriculum of the Holy Spirit is the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so what God is doing in our lives is he is working that death and that resurrection into every area of our life. And so this morning, what I want us to consider is uh, spiritual gifts in light of worship. All right, spiritual gifts in light of worship. So with that in mind, let's look together. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 1 through uh, 25. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. But the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Now brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, uh, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit. But I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to you, uh, to your thanksgiving, when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophecy, if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. 
he is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, would you pray with me now for the teaching? Heavenly Father, uh, for many of us, this is a strange word, uh, foreign to our experiences. Uh, for others of us, it is a word uh, that we know all too clearly. And it's our prayer now uh, that you would be with us and that you would speak uh, through this, your word. We are thankful uh, that you're a God, not hidden or silent, but one who really does delight to make yourself known among us. And so as we attend unto your word over these next few moments, would you please make yourself known to us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I used to have three kids in my house. Uh, they were my children. And uh, they loved this card game called Mal. And I'm not sure if you've ever played Mal before, but if anyone ever asks you to play Mal, run away and yell at them and tell them they're evil. Because Mal is this game where a group of people know the rules of the game and they pick a few people who don't know the rules of the game and they don't tell them the rules of the game and they say, let's just start playing and you're supposed to figure it out. And then the dealer is an autocrat who just sort of makes fun of you for playing the wrong card every time. And then all the other people who know the rules, they just laugh at you for not knowing how to play. And it seems like the purpose of this game is fundamentally to help a select few people feel superior and to make a select few people feel left out. And it's sort of like paranoia and B-flat by the Avett brothers. I keep having this dream. I'm at a party. There's people throwing drinks and screaming, telling me I don't belong, right? And that's what Corinthian worship was like, right? It was this big party of people telling people they don't belong. And that's the point of this discussion about tongues and prophecy. Now, I want to say that up front, uh, this is a complicated passage, and it's complicated not so much because of what it says, but it's complicated because we all have our own personal experiences with God and with the church and with worship. And we all have models, uh, we all have preferences, uh, and we all have likes and dislikes. For instance, uh, you know, I like hymns. Uh, and many of you like Maverick City. Uh, I like Porter's Gate, and many of you like Sandra McCracken. Uh, I like uh, when Parker Green plays the mandolin, and others of you uh, don't. Uh, so stop, <laughs> stop sending letters about it. Uh, but uh, uh, just kidding. But others of you, uh, you know, like more free-form uh, services, and others like more liturgical services. Some of us uh, here really wish that there was more energy in our worship. And you might be right. And then there are others, uh, I don't know why anyone snickered at that. And then uh, others of you might wish that there was a little more lament, and you're probably right as well. Some wish we had more free prayers, and others of you wish our sermons were much shorter. But we all have these desires, we all have these preferences, uh, and we all have these models, and we all come from different experiences. I mean, some of you come from different countries, uh, which are filled with different expressions that fill out your culture. Others of you, uh, you come from different traditions, and oftentimes the Church of Jesus has divided over our gifts. Right? And those gifts take on different traditions, and different traditions then elevate different things and emphasize different things within our worship. And all these desires and all these preferences and all these models begin then to shape what we think is right. 
They, they begin to shape what we expect when we come together. And they also expect, uh, they also, um, I don't know, infect maybe the way we come to interpret this passage. We bring all of our experiences and we put them on this passage. Now, my desire this morning is not to make fun of a tradition. And my desire is not to try to undo any of your experiences or to negate any of your experiences or to undo any of your traditions or your preferences or desires. My real desire this morning is to try to help clear some ground so that we can begin to see Paul's main point about gifts in worship, all right? And I think what Paul is saying is this, worship is meant to make God known, Right, that's the purpose of worship, is to make God known. And so our prayer this morning is, God, would you make yourself known? Right? God, would you make yourself known? Would you say that with me? God, would you make yourself known? Now, you might remember that Paul has been saying over and over again throughout 1 Corinthians that love is the way in which the Spirit intends for us to use his gifts. And he's also been saying that all the Spirit's gifts are gifts, that's what they are. They're gifts. They're given to us. And therefore, we shouldn't use the gifts of the Spirit uh, to rank ourselves or to rank others. We shouldn't use the gifts of the Spirit, to dis- the Spirit to distance ourselves from one another. But we ought to be using the gifts of the Holy Spirit in love in order to draw us near to one another so that together we might come to understand God. You also might remember that back in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 31, uh, Paul said this. He said, earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Now, the still more excellent way was chapter 13, which is the way of love. That, that all of God's gifts are given to us uh, out of his love for us, and that we are then to use those gifts in the way of love. But he also talks about these higher gifts. And so the question is, what are the higher gifts? Now, to understand the higher gifts, we've got to ask a question. Higher with respect to what? Right? Higher with respect to what? Now, obviously, if you've been following the argument of 1 Corinthians, we know that it can't be uh, higher with respect to being more spiritual. We know it can't be higher with respect to being more valuable in the sight of God. We also know that it can't be about achieving some higher spiritual plane or status over other people. So what is it higher than? Higher with respect to what? Well, higher with respect to the loving service of making God known within the worship of God's people. And this seems to be clear from verse 1, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. And what he's saying is he's saying, look, you are to use your gifts for the building up of the body. You saw it in verse 5, you saw it in verse 6, you saw it in verse 17, and it's in verse 26 as well. Building up, building up, building up. And so what he's saying is the Spirit's gifts are to be used in such a way that lovingly communicate the love of God. Secondly, what I want you to notice is that Paul's concern here isn't so much with your private experiences, but it is with the public gatherings. Look at verse 16. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, 
How can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So do you see the context here that Paul is addressing the gathering of the church for worship. And he's saying that the goal of the gathering of the church in worship is intelligibility. That when God gathers his people together as his body, his desire or his goal is to make himself known among us. Look at verse 24. If an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so fallen in his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. And so do you see what Paul is saying? He's saying when God draws us together in worship, we are to love one another and speak to one another in such a way that is hospitable and intelligible in order that God might make himself clearly known among us. And that is our prayer for this morning, that God would make himself known among us. So let's pray that. God, would you make yourself known among us? Would you say that with me? God, would you make yourself known among us? Now, what this means is that church and worship are not just for you. That's what it means. That church and worship are not just for you. It means that what we do in worship is not just about my own personal experiences, my own personal desires, or my own personal emotions. But we are to participate in worship in such a way that verse 17, others are built up. And verse 16, outsiders can say amen. Now this does not mean that our own personal experiences during worship don't matter, but what it does mean is that we aren't merely in search of our own personal experiences. Instead, we are seeking a communal experience in which together we are being built up and non-believers can come in our midst and they can come to know Jesus. Right? Public worship is meant to be communal, not individual. And this is one of the reasons that Redeemer has gravitated towards liturgical forms. Now, I want you to hear me say this. I don't believe that the only way to worship Jesus is with our liturgy. Like, I love our liturgy. I think it's great. Uh, but we have gravitated towards a liturgy as an attempt to give common words and common songs and common forms in order to shape us as a community in common ways and help others, outsiders, visitors, uh, have a clear expectation of what is going on among us. We also believe uh, that our common liturgy gives us common words and common ways so that together we can be active during the service and so that together we can engage in the presence of God. And we've gravitated towards liturgy because it connects us historically to some of the ways that God has made himself known uh, in the past, and in many of the ways in which God continues to make himself known. And so we believe, uh, contrary to some people's opinion, that the Spirit works in the midst of the liturgy. And the reason the Spirit works in the midst of the liturgy is not because the liturgy is magic, but it's because God is actually among us. And of course we know that God isn't limited to our liturgy, but we do believe that he uses it. 
Uh, And this is our way at Redeemer of trying to apply these principles of hospitality, intelligibility, and community, right, within our worship. Now, it's also important to notice uh, that, that Paul's expectation about worship of God's people is that verse 16, outsiders, and verse 23, unbelievers will be among us. And this is really important because as Christians, we tend to make this distinction between evangelism and worship or between evangelism and discipleship. But Paul's assumption is that whenever Christians gather together, non-Christians would be among them. And so if a non-Christian is not invited or welcomed, it might not be Christian. And the reason we believe this is because we don't believe that Christianity is a private religion. What we believe as Christians is that Christianity is a public truth. We don't just believe that Christianity is for us. We believe that Christianity is the truth for the entire world. And to understand the world apart from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit is to misunderstand the world. And what we believe is that God delights to make himself known in the world, right, through the gathering of his people. And so like Paul, we ought to fully expect and we ought to fully desire for non-Christians to be among us when we gather. And I would assume that some of you here this morning are not Christians and you don't believe the things that many of us in here believe. And I want to say thank you for coming. And I want to say thank you for accepting someone's invitation to come and be among us. And my real hope for you this morning is that you would hear of the beauty and the goodness of Jesus. That Jesus actually died for our sins. And that through his resurrection from the dead, he gives us eternal life with him forever. And just as he rose from the dead, uh, we too will rise from the dead to be with him. And we believe that to view the world in any other way is to misunderstand not only God, uh, but yourself and the world in which you live. And this is why we gather week after week as Christians, because we too forget this story. And so we gather uh, together to, to rest in the love that God has for us, which we tend to forget. And we gather together uh, uh, to remind each other of this love of God and the story of God's grace and his mercy, because we tend to forget it. And we come to rest and be reminded of it so that we might be those who go out into the world reflecting it. And this is why we come together and we sing to God because we love him. And and this is why we come together and we pray to him because we think he's active and he actually exists. And, And this is why we confess our sins together because we believe that we've actually sinned against God. And only God can forgive us. And we confess our sins to him because we actually believe that God delights to forgive us. And we listen to his word together because we actually believe that his word is not just a word to us, but it's a word to the world. And we come to this table week after week after week because this is God's gift to us. Through which he reminds us of his love for us through his death right? And it's through this meal that we are strengthened by his Holy Spirit to reflect him. And it's through this meal that he makes this great promise to us that he is not distant from us, but delights to come near to us. And this promise that he will come again. And when he comes, 
we will feast with him in his presence forever, right? That's what we believe. Now, I know some of you don't believe that, but my hope is that you would actually at least hear it and that you would actually understand what we believe and that by God's grace, he might make himself known to you just as he has made himself known to us. And so our prayer as Christians this morning is, God, would you make yourself known among us? God, would you make yourself known among us? Would you say that with me? God, would you make yourself known among us? Now, that's a lot of just trying to clear the brush in order to get at the main point that the church is meant to be a community that is lovingly and intelligibly uh, making God known. So now I want to attempt to sort of look at some of the details of the text, all right? Some of you aren't satisfied with the first part. You're definitely not going to be satisfied with the second part. All right. Uh, So first, let's talk about tongues. In the Bible, tongues tend to express themselves in two main ways. For instance, in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, it said that the apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. It then goes on to describe what was happening, and you see it in verse 6. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. So what was happening in Acts chapter 2 is pretty phenomenal. An apostle would speak, he would preach, about the resurrected Jesus, who is king of the world, to whom all owe life and service. And when he would preach, people from all tongues, tribes, and nations who were in Jerusalem that day heard it in their own language. So the apostle would preach, and they would hear it, and they would understand it. And this was a reversal of the Tower of Babel back in Genesis. You remember back in Genesis, uh, the languages of the world were confused, right? And because the languages of the world were confused, people were driven away from one another. Now, the point of Pentecost is that God is now drawing people back together under the clear public proclamation that Jesus, the one who died for our sins and rose from the dead in order to give us eternal life with him, is now the forever risen king. And so the tongues in the book of Acts were actually clear, intelligible, public proclamation that Jesus is king over the whole world. Right, that's in Acts chapter chapter 2. But in Corinth, the tongues seem to have a slightly different expression. Right, the tongues that Paul is referring to here seem to have a more personal nature to them. And this personal expression of tongues, he says, is actually a good gift. Uh, In fact, he says you should desire these things. Uh, he, he says, uh, and then he flexes really hard on them in verse 18. And he says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. So like y'all are boasting about this thing, but let me just tell you, it's not that I'm better than you. I just do it more than you, right? And that, now it seems what's happening in Corinth is that the Corinthians had come to believe that this gift of tongues was actually the highest form of spirituality. And it would be easy to understand why this might be, right? Because if God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do, right? You remember that song as children. 
Some of you surely do. Uh, and some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. And forgive me. We're supposed to be intelligible here. But, uh, but because God is so big and he's so mysterious, he's so mighty, if there's this heavenly realm, if there's this heavenly kingdom, then the gift to be able to speak in the tongues of angels or the gift to be able to speak in the language of heaven would mean that they had connected to the divine in this unique, intimate way. That'd be an amazing gift, right? It's an amazing gift. And Paul affirms this. In fact, he says that in some way, this speaking of tongues is verse two, understood as speaking to God and uttering mysteries in your spirit. In verse 15, he talks about praying in my spirit. In verse 16, singing with my spirit. And for many people, right, this is a tremendous encouragement of intimate communion with God. Whether it's an experience that you have with God of this overwhelming sense of his love and this overwhelming joy that he speaks to you and that you respond to. Or maybe it's this groaning that is too deep for words in which God speaks with you and you to him. And if you've ever experienced this gift, you know that it's just that. It's a gift. It's not earned. It's not deserved. It's not controlled. But it's given, right? It's freely given and freely received. Now, the problem that Paul has is not the gift. The problem's not the gift. It's the use of the gift. And you see this in verse 19. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Now, why would he say that? Well, because tongues are unintelligible to other people. In fact, they're often emotional. Uh, in fact, they're very experiential. But they are usually unintelligible even to the speaker. And that is why he says in verse 13, if you receive a tongue, you should pray for an interpretation. Right? And, and this is his point. The, the, the goal of Christian worship is that we would love and enjoy God. But the goal of Christian worship is also to make God known so that we together might love and enjoy God. And so that we may no longer remain in Babel, but we are brought back together under the clear proclamation of Jesus. And so what I want you to see here is that the problem isn't the gift. The problem was the way the gift was being used in worship. And it was being used in such a way that it was not a gift to the neighbor. In fact, he says in verse 23, uh, outsiders will say, you are out of your mind. Sort of like when everyone saw uh, Harry Potter use parcel tongue. And they're like, what are you doing? This is crazy. Are you out of your mind? Are you the heir of Slytherin? Uh, anyway, uh, not saying that that's what tongues is. That's, uh, forgive me. Um, but here's the old adage, right? Not everything you want to say needs to be said, right? In fact, Paul says, uh, maybe it shouldn't be said. And this is actually technical, but it's really fascinating because the Corinthians were speaking in tongues at church thinking that this would be a blessing to everyone because they're thinking, if we can just show this mysterious gift and everybody would see it, they would bow down and think, man, surely God's here. This is amazing, right? But look at what Paul says, verse 21. In the law it is written... By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Now this is a quote uh, from Isaiah 28, verse 11. 
And the context of Isaiah 28, verse 11, is the context of judgment. And what's happening in Isaiah 28 is that God is saying, my word is going to go out precept by precept, line by line, and it will not be understood. That the word will go out precept by precept, line by line, it goes out so that they may fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. And he's saying that when God's word goes out and it's not understood and it's not received, it's a sign of judgment. And this is why Paul says in verse 22, thus tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers but for believers. And so, prof- uh, so, so tongues is a sign. But the question is, it's a sign of what? Well, in light of Paul's use of Isaiah 28, the use of tongues in worship was actually a sign of judgment on those who do not understand because it's a way of hiding what God desires to make known. And so when someone comes into our midst and we speak in ways that are unintelligible, what we are telling people is that they don't belong and that God's word is not for them. And that is an act of judgment. Right? And, and this is why he goes on to say that prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers but for believers. And his point is this, is that when people hear and understand the beauty and the glory of God, when they see their sin and their need for Jesus, when they hear that God is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in love, and when they understand this and they begin to worship him, this is a sign, not of judgment, but it is a sign of salvation. And that is the goal of worship, right? That as we gather together, we would hear of the salvation of God. And so our prayer is, God, make yourself known among us. Right? God, make yourself known among us. Would you say that with me? God, would you make yourself known among us? And this is why uh, Paul emphasizes prophecy over tongues, because what he's saying is clear communication actually builds up. That, that it communicates and allows both Christians and non-Christians the privilege of hearing the good news of Jesus. All right, so what about prophecy? Well, different traditions talk about prophecy in different ways. So in some traditions, prophecy is a particular spoken word, uh, whether in public or in private, that pierces the heart. In other traditions, uh, prophecy is sort of the application of the Bible to the culture. In other traditions, prophecy is the making of predictions about the future. In other traditions, prophecy is like understanding the times. In others, it's a word about God want, what God wants us to do together. And in other traditions, prophecy is just associated with the preaching of the Bible. Now, we've got to understand uh, the redemptive historical context that's going on in 1 Corinthians. And the first thing is this. Uh, these Corinthians didn't have a New Testament. It's kind of obvious, right? Because this is the letter that they're receiving. And so the New Testament is being formed, right? And so we say the canon was still open. And so what would happen in the church was that the Old Testament would be read, uh, pastors, prophets, teachers, elders, uh, laymen, they would get up and they would give a word to help the community understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's word. And so sometimes what would happen is that apostles like 
Paul would write a letter and that letter would get circulated to all the churches and the churches would then read that letter and they would receive it, right, as the word of God. There are also teachers and prophets who, uh, who loved Jesus and they went around and they would teach about how Jesus is the fulfillment of God's word. He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And then when the apostles died out, uh, traditionally we say the canon was closed or the New Testament was complete. And this is why people in Presbyterian and Reformed circles are often concerned about tongues or prophecy. Not so much the gifts of tongues or prophecy, but because the concern that people often have is when new revelation right, is held out as authoritative over the community. But what we have traditionally believed and what Christians have traditionally believed is that the Bible is God's authority for his church. And the way we say it in our church is that uh, the Bible is the only uh, rule uh, for faith and practice. Uh, Not the voices of men and not the voices of women, uh, but the scriptures, but God's word is, right? And so that's our concern. But that doesn't necessarily negate, right, these gifts, right? Uh, And it doesn't necessarily tell us what prophecy is. Uh, So I think, and I want you to hear me, I think, say it with me, I think, all right, you don't have to, I don't know what you think, but uh, but I think uh, that prophecy is a general term for intelligible words about God's mission for the world that have been accomplished in Jesus. And these words of prophecy include things like verse 6, revelation or knowledge uh, or prophecy or teaching. Uh, And this prophecy is meant for the building up of the church. You see that in verse 3, verse 5, verse 6, verse 17, verse 26. And so prophecy is a word that is spoken in such a way that it's meant to speak to our hearts and to our minds. And it's meant to give clarity right, about salvation. You see that in verse 25. It convicts us of our sin. It reveals uh, the secrets of our hearts. It draws us into worship because in hearing the prophecy, we hear the voice of God himself. And what happens? We bow down and worship him with this clear sense, right, that God is among us. Now, this is a lot, and it's become more of a lecture than a sermon, and so I hope you'll forgive me for that. But here's the point. Worship is meant to make God known. And everything that we do together, right, is meant to make him known, both to each other and to our non-believing friends who are among us. And, And there's nowhere more clear that this is the case than at the Lord's table. Because at the table, God delights to make himself known to all of our senses. As we come to this table, you get to uh, taste the bread and the wine. If you're bold enough, you can smell the bread and the wine. Uh, You hold it in your hands. You see it. And as we come to this table, we, we stand around this table. And by standing around the table together, we are saying that this meal is not just for me, but it's for all of us. And the teachers of the church have always said that the, that the sacraments are the word made visible, meaning that they're the illustrations of God's story. And so when we come to this table, we're not coming in unintelligible ways or in mysterious ways, but we come to this table so that Jesus might communicate himself to us, so that we might see him clearly in his body and his blood that are given for us.
As we taste and we see that he is good, we see that he gave himself for our sins and for the sins of the entire world. And this is convicting, right? Because what this table tells us is that Jesus died because of my sin and because of your sin. But this table also tells us that his death is actually the result of his love. And as we come to this table, we are reminded that God's love, this is the good news, that God's love is actually greater than our sin. That his love is greater than our sin. And so we come to this table so that he might assure us that he's not distant, that he's not cast us aside, but he's a God who draws near and delights to be among us. And so this morning we come to this table because God wants to make himself known among us. So God, as we come, would you make yourself known among us? Would you say that with me one last time? God, God, would you make make yourself yourself known among us?